Hello and welcome to episode 59 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. My name is Dan DeFrancesco. I'm the deputy editor of Cellside Technology. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, the U.S. editor of Waters Technology, Anthony Malikian. Good afternoon, everyone. So, as you can see, this is a uh, fun-filled, action-packed Waters Wavelength podcast. So much happening podcast. today. So much. First up, we have Gabriel Wu, uh, the VP of Innovation at RBC. And uh, then followed up by James Rundle, who's a staff writer uh, for the risk management desk of Risk.net to talk about... Former family member of Waters Technology. Former family member of Waters Technology. Mm -hmm. He's going to come on and chat to us. He moved on up to bigger and better things. Yeah, Yeah. leaving us in the dust. He's going to talk to us about the uh, London Stock Exchange Deutsche Bourse uh, merger setback that occurred this week. Um, So no point really dilly-dallying. We'll get right into it. Uh, First up is my interview with... Gabriel Wu, VP of Innovation at RBC. All right, and I'm joined now by my guest, Gabriel Wu, uh, Vice President of Innovation at RBC. Uh, Gabriel, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Dan, for having me. Yeah, so we were uh, supposed to have this conversation face-to-face in person, but uh, if anyone that listened last week knows that some plane issues uh, messed that up, but Gabriel was nice enough to still have this conversation regarding AI and and machine learning uh, over the phone. So we're we're grateful for him taking the time out of his day to to talk to us. Um, and Gabriel, I think you know the, where we can start is, you know, RBC has made a, a couple of inch, really interesting announcements about their involvement and in looking into the machine learning and artificial intelligence space over the past you know nine months or so. Uh, back in October, there was the announcement of a uh, collaboration with the University of Toronto, um, you know, with the RBC Research and Machine Learning and uh, the partnering with uh, the Creative Destruction, Destruction Lab uh, at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. And then uh, this year, uh, at the end of January, we also had the announcement about uh, working with uh, Dr. Richard Sutton. So for our listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with kind of some of the, the moves that RBC has been making in, you know, AI machine learning space, can you maybe summarize some of the stuff, you know, specifically these two announcements, uh, the work that you guys have been doing in that space over the past uh, few months? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, first of all, I think AI and machine learning broadly is just a huge uh, topic area uh, and there's been an amazing amount of work that's been done and, and progress being made over the last several years um, and you know that's not to say that until these announcements RBC hadn't been doing anything um, but I think the notable sort of change in our approach or the you know new approach that we've taken um, is a very kind of deliberate uh, partnership with academic institutions, particularly um, some of the leading institutions in the world um, in artificial intelligence and machine learning. And it just so happens that, you know, a, a number of them are actually Canadian. And so we're fortunate, um, you know, as RBC, as, you know, the largest bank in Canada to be essentially neighbors to some of the top uh, academic research labs in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, University of Toronto, um, for many of your listeners you might know, um, was the or is the home to uh, Professor Jeff Hinton, um, who you know many would regard as one of the fathers of uh, neural networks and deep learning. Um, and Professor, Professor Richard Sutton um, is the you know, father of a specialized field of machine learning called reinforcement learning, and Professor Sutton. 
um, works out of or teaches at the University of Alberta. Uh, so those are a couple of the partnerships that we have, um, uh, uh, or a couple of the you know initiatives that we have launched. Um, one here in Toronto, um, you know, and then also RBC being headquartered here, we've built out what we're now calling RBC Research um, in Toronto. Um, and then the expansion into Alberta and to Edmonton in particular um, is through a partnership with the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute. Um, so Professor uh, Richard Sutton is one of the members of that institute. Uh, but beyond um, Professor Sutton himself, there's also a very strong machine learning um, research community in Edmonton. Um, and you know we're looking uh, forward to being a part of that through our expansion um, into there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you mentioned it how it is such a, a large um, you know area AI machine learning and you know especially you know we've seen a surge of it but it's certainly been around for a while but we've seen a surge of it over the past few years of interest in it and kind of different avenues that uh, you know firms on the buy side and sell side are going down in terms of ways that they can implement it and use it uh, specific to to you guys now what what areas do you really feel that now you know as you kind of Put invest more into this and really put a, a, an even deep, uh, finer point on it in terms of a focus. What areas of implementation are you really seeing um, in the near future that RBC is really going to have a big interest in uh, when it comes to machine learning and AI? Yeah, I mean, like, frankly, I think with machine learning, um, virtually every application where there is, you know, lots of data um, and lots of you know, data presumably leading to, to a, a new insight, um, you could find application for, you know, different AI or machine learning techniques. Uh, I think one of the reasons we ended up, we started going down this path of, you know, really building our own expertise, you know, by hiring, you know, researchers and, you know, having researchers continue to conduct research um, is because we were starting to, you know, work with a lot of different uh, potential partners or, you know, call it FinTech or technology startup companies um, and, you know, just about everybody started to talk about their company being a machine learning company or an AI-powered company. Um, and, and for a bank, it was um, a little bit hard to navigate this space, not being experts in that space, right? It was a little like, you know, uh, trying to pick the best uh, brain surgeon <laughs> to, to operate on you uh, without having any idea what would make a good brain surgeon or if one, you know, is actually a brain surgeon at all, right? So um, that was sort of the, the predicament we found ourselves in a little bit. Um, and, you know, uh, and then also recognizing that, hey, actually, we're literally in the backyard of all these, you know, some of the preeminent researchers in the world on artificial intelligence. So what we decided was that we would actually go and build our own capability in this space. Um, and that's where we, you know, started you know, building up these research capabilities. Um, you know, and then in terms of specific areas where we think that there may be applications, uh, one second here. Um, you know, like I, saying, like I was saying, there's a lot of different um, areas where as long as there's a, a high volumes uh, of data that could be consumed, that there, there would be a lot of um, potential applicability. Um, so certainly, you know, some of the more obvious areas that we've already been working on would be, you know, around fraud um, management and fraud detection. Um, you know, there is, in the, um, you know, within AI, a field called natural language processing where, you know, using AI, you're able to 
uh, both understand as well as try to replicate human speech. Um, so things that are you know, you know, called chatbots or conversational AI agents uh, have the potential to be a new and sort of more intuitive way for clients to be able to, or retail clients in this case, to be able to interact with banks as opposed to through an app or going to a branch or, or speaking to someone. Um, so that is another area of potential application. Um, and then, you know, specifically on reinforcement learning, which we can talk a little bit more about, um, there are, you know, what we refer to time series data. So think about, um, you know, any market data um, or transaction data over time um, being, um, you know, a fertile ground for looking for potential um, signals or, 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 you know, um, ability to help predict the future based on historical data. Um, so, you know, reinforcement learning being a particularly strong or, you know, um, uh, high potential area or high potential technique for exploiting those types of data sets uh, to be able to help make better uh, predictions for the future. So, you know, in a nutshell, I mean, really, it's, it's um, they, and then by, by the way, like, it's also beyond just financial services, obviously. Um, so there's a lot of work that, you know, some of our researchers are doing that we think potentially have application into other fields. Um, but uh, within financial services, certainly some of the, those are some of the areas that we're looking into. I think your first point is some, I mean, both, I it's, it's great info. I think your first point is something really interesting because it's so true. You know, I had my, my co-host that I usually deal with, Anthony Maliki, and he's the U.S. editor here. He's done a lot of work, a lot of features on natural language processing, machine learning, AI. And one of the things you kind of notice, and this is, I'm sure you can attest to this, this is with any new technology, is that you see the third-party providers, the vendors kind of catch on to that there's a buzzword that's in the industry that's picking up steam. And if they can tag it on and try to sell it as saying, oh yeah, we're now involved or this new enhancement is using AI or machine learning. And to your point, it's it's like picking a brain surgeon when some of them don't even know how to perform brain surgery. I think it's a great point and something that you know, some of these bigger firms that maybe don't initially have the experience need to consider. From your perspective, you know, the choice to bring it in-house and, and work on it in, internally, do you think for a firm that initially doesn't have as much knowledge or experience coming going into it with machine learning, is that the best step as opposed to potentially partnering with a third party or a vendor or working with a fintech that maybe, you know, doesn't necessarily completely represent itself uh, correctly when it comes to the work it can do with AI and machine learning? Um, it's a good question because, you know, we, we being uh, RBC have the luxury uh, of being able to build such teams. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, this type of talent is highly sought after, right? And the, the, the people that we've been hiring into our research lab typically wouldn't be considering working at a at a bank, right? They mm -hmm. would be looking at some of the large tech companies or, you know, you know sort of the usual suspects of where these, you know, the, 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 the you know, top tech talent tend to go. Um, I think one, one of the things is, um, I think the, the, what I'm starting to see is in the industry, you could expect to start seeing, um, you know, advisors or consultants or, you know, that type of, um, um, you know, advisory kind of boutiques starting to, to pop up. I do see some of that already. Uh, and I think some of them are, you know, um, going to be very useful for the, the smaller companies or, or for, for, you know, firms that may not feel like, you know, they need to, you know, have a, you know, captive team, um, and, and, you know, uh, over the course of the year. 
Um, and, and for someone that's just trying to get a, an understanding uh, into the space and you know, you know, better understand the applicability into what they do, um, I think some of these you know advisors might be actually um, sufficient. Um, for us, right, like we're we're not you know stopping to work with other potential sources of innovation in this space. Right, we will continue to work with startups. Uh, we are continuing to work with some of the larger tech companies that are you know also exploring this space. Um, for us, it was more just making sure that we're full, you know, um, uh, exposed to all steps of that pipeline, uh, if you will, um, from the academics, labs, uh, and research to the startup community to some of the larger tech companies that are able to sell ser uh, sell services and products. Um, you know, that we've decided to go down that path, and uh, you know, building part of our own building some of our own in-house capability was necessary for that. Mm -hmm. Sure. I, I know, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's to your point. It's, I think it's, it kind of reminds me a lot of years ago with kind of the cloud, how it kind of became popular and you saw a lot of vendors say, Oh, cloud offering, cloud offering. And it wasn't necessarily, yeah, exactly. you know, and, and, you know, you can get caught up in maybe getting in the wrong partnership or someone kind of selling you something and maybe, so it's, it's, it, you, you make a great point. I think the, the advisory um, aspect of it is certainly interesting, you know, especially for maybe the smaller buy side firms that don't have, you know, the, the capabilities to, to start up its, its own shop. But specifically now to, you know, some of the, the offerings that you're working on, I know we, we kind of touched, you did a good job of kind of touching on a couple of different things, the basis being anywhere there's high volumes of data. Anything that stands out specifically as an area, you know, maybe the next six months where you guys see you can make some real traction, you know, a specific type of offering or implementation at the bank that you guys are, are, are very excited about around AI or machine learning? Um, you know, I'm not going to hazard a guess, to be honest with you, sure. in terms of the, the time frame, um, especially, you know, on the RBC research work. Um, like I was saying, this is the earliest step in the you know life cycle of an idea, if you will, the mm -hmm. researchers are working on, you know, some of which are really truly um, scientific you know, advancement of the field of artificial intelligence, and we're, we're working with you know professors uh, on university campuses. Um, the I think the, the the area of so having said that, um, the area of reinforcement learning, um, which is where uh, Professor Richard Sutton is. Really, the the, the world uh, leading expert on um, we think is just really interesting and, and potentially um, very very exciting for the financial services field, um, as for many other fields. But certainly, financial services we think there could be real applicability. And just by the way, um, I think it was uh, January this year that the MIT Tech Review and their annual sort of uh, I, I guess it's their annual prognostication of the key technology trends for the year. Um, I think named um, uh, reinforcement learning as one of the top trends, if not the top trend of 2017. Um, just goes to show you. I mean, there is, you know, you know, some buzz out there already on this um, as a as a potential transformative trend. Um, and you know, if, if for, for those of you who aren't familiar with reinforcement learning, like I was saying before, it is a branch of machine learning. But um, the way that it differs from classical or you know, standard machine learning, I suppose. Um, machine learning typically requires um, a large data set uh, and a training process up front, right, to train up an algorithm uh, so, you know, so that, quote, unquote, the machine can sort of look at a certain set of outputs and be able to draw correlation to, to 
sorry, it looks at a set of inputs and draw a correlation to the outputs uh, and basically start forming the algorithm based on what it observes through you know, a set of uh, data. And so that obviously requires A, having a large set of data, and then B, uh, an investment in the process of training uh, the machine um, to, 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 to start forming these kinds of um, relationships. Um, the difference with reinforcement learning is that it doesn't actually require this upfront training, nor does it require you to have a sort of ingoing large data set. It's able to essentially learn on the fly, right? This idea of reinforcement that, you know, the, 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 an algorithm will uh, attempt to respond to some kind of input and stimuli, um, and then it's provided with uh, either a reinforcement if the outcome was positive or desired, um, and it, if it's a negative or an undesirable outcome, it's given a disincentive or at least no reinforcement. Um, and over time, the algorithm learns what's desirable and what's not desirable and helps to predict what the next step should be for each input that's provided to it. Um, so as you can imagine, so this is um, one where it, it's learning on the fly. At first, it's not going to be nearly as accurate. It's going to bump into some walls. It's going to make some mistakes. But over time, it has the power to learn um, to become incredibly powerful and accurate. Um, and so that's one of the technologies that, that I, I think I alluded to earlier as well is very well suited to time series data, which, you know, in a lot of different financial um, data sets, um, they are time series data, whether it's markets data, transactional data, and so forth. Um, so this is one area. And by the way, it's also an uh, incredibly powerful uh, technique that's also used in things like self-driving um, autonomous vehicles. Right? As you can imagine, you cannot possibly, you know, uh, spec out all the different permutations and possibilities of the environment around a vehicle. Sure. So a car is learning as it goes, um, and it's you know accumulating experience. It's a little bit. It's actually really you know uh, based off of the concept of reinforcement in psychology, right? If you do something that's good, you're rewarded. If you do something that's bad, then you're penalized. Uh, and you know, kind of like how a baby learns over time is how you know reinforcement learning uh, works. Sure. No, that I mean, the, I think it's interesting, the, the fact that the barrier for entry is so much lower. You know, I think when a lot of people think of AI machine learning, they think of, okay, bringing in this massive amount of data and being able to process it. And, and the fact that you can kind of maybe more quickly plug in and go and not need that huge legacy amount of, of data is, is definitely important. I mean, now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm far from, you know, a, a tech wizard, uh, you know, in, in certain aspects. But this kind of at, a, at the base level, is it kind of maybe could you compare it to, uh, you know, almost the rating system on Netflix, where when you first start your Netflix subscription, you don't ha give it any data. But then you watch a movie, you give it five stars. You watch another movie or a TV show, you give it one star and the recommendations and the suggestions get better. Is that kind of the similar concept? Yeah, that's a that's a very good example, actually. Right. So the the algorithm at first will, you know, probably be hit and miss, right, in terms mm -hmm. of its recommendations to you. Um, but the more it learns about you, um, and by the way, like this is where I think it's a combination of techniques. Like there is reinforcement learning there about you, but then there's also the com, you know, comparison of you with other people like you. Um, that then is able to very quickly start to triangulate on something that's you know going to be increasing in accuracy over time.
Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I, I know we're, we're, we're winding down here and you've been very gracious with your time, but before I let you go, I wanted one more, one more question I wanted to ask you was around, you know, like you said, AI is very broad and kind of anywhere where there's a lot of data, you, you know, there's potential use cases for, and we've seen, I would say over the past two years, a really upsurge, you know, certainly in the past year of, you know, folks on the financial services side, definitely being interested in it. Is there anywhere that you guys are exploring or any space, you know, whether it's specific to risk management or front office, back office, middle office, you see use cases for AI that maybe haven't necessarily been, um, you know, uh, invested or or, or looked into or investigated into. You know, we've seen a lot of stuff maybe on the front office. We've seen a lot of stuff with, you know, uh, trade surveillance and, and market surveillance. Anywhere specifically that's something that stands out is maybe something that, uh, other firms haven't necessarily talked about looking into with a potential use case for AI? Um, I mean, to be honest with you, I, my, my, my view is AI um, is still, you know, it's, um, developing uh, so quickly, right? Mm-hmm. And, the, and it's getting more powerful with the new techniques that are being developed. Um, I think we're going to find, you know, a, a lot more applicability it, it virtually across all the different use cases, whether or not it's stuff that we already do uh, or, or things that, you know, we really have just barely scratched the surface of. Um, you know, whether, when, you, when you say, like, front office or, or, um, um, or in a retail setting, client-facing kind of a, a, a interactions, I think there's a lot more that, that's going to be um, possible there. Right? Certainly middle, back office, some of the more operational um, and, and processy kinds of things. Um, there's a lot of opportunity for um, intelligent automation, um, you know, beyond simple process automation that you know obviously has been you know, around for decades. Um, but you know, much more intelligent uh, operations uh, uh, automation, and in fact, the reduction of operational risk um, and manual and human error. Um, all of those are, are, are certainly possibilities. I mean, the other one is, um, you know, the intersection between artificial intelligence um, and, and cybersecurity is another area that's, you know, uh, I think quite exciting because um, the ability of AI to be able to crawl through massive amounts of data in a, you know, in a, in a, um, in, in a, in a very efficient way, certainly much, much more quickly than, you know, humans can possibly do, um, you know, potentially provides it a lot of possibility for you know, being able to get much more targeted in terms of, you know, looking for and hunting for even um, cyber threats. Um, so all of these are areas that, you know, frankly, will be, I think, will continue to find exploration. Um, and really, that's why we're so excited about our investment in AI. Um, I mean, the last thing I would want to say is, like, the, you know, the, the, the investments that RBC has made, um, you know, we, we, we've done, done so, you know, first and foremost, you know, making sure that, like as I said, that we can actually, um, you know, secure some of the talent and some some capability internally, so that we get smarter on this in in this space. Um, but I think the, the you know kind of a, a broader, even more strategic thing, is um, really thinking about the the potential for AI to be transformative in so many other ways, and um, you know, and and the looking at a, a bank as a place where true R&D gets done, even scientific R&D. Um, it's a bit of a you know, novel concept, although if you thought about it, like it, there's no reason why we shouldn't. We, 
um, sit on really, really rich and really um, deep data sets. Um, probably some of the richest data on, you know, certainly, um, you know, are, are, are on, on, on real data, on real clients, on real sort of, you know, communities of, of, of companies and people and so forth. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot there that, that should be that, that should be doable. Um, and frankly, us looking at this from, uh, from from the perspective of you know being able to do a lot more with that, to, you know, whether it's to improve operations or to provide more targeted, um, you know, advice you know, to, to to our clients, so to you know um, reduce the risk and um, you know reduce uh, the uh, possibility of fraud and, and cyber threats. Um, all of those are you know, real interesting use cases for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Gabriel, we really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to, to chat with us today. So thanks so much uh, for, for joining the podcast and giving him, give us a little bit of insight into RBC's work into uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. All right. And now I'm joined not only by Anthony, but also by James Rundle, staff writer on the risk management desk for our sister publication, brother's sister publication, Risk.net. James also, in a past life, was the deputy editor of Cellside Technology, which is my job, making me a little feel uncomfortable. The old, the old uh, girlfriend's coming back into town. So much. <laughs> yeah, and uh, also spent time uh, writing for the Dow Jones. So, James, thanks for joining us. That's no, good. Man, pleasure to be here. So. Uh, you know, in addition to the conversation I had with Gabriel, I, you know, also the big news story um, this week was the London Stock Exchange Deutsche Börse merger, merger that murder. <laughs> now that would be a story. Uh, the uh, the potential uh, setback they had, and uh, James is an expert in this. He's done a lot of coverage of this uh, while he was at the Dow Jones. So we thought it'd be good as a former friend of Waters. Well, not former. I was wondering about the definite article. Oh, sorry. Dow Jones? (laughs) This is why I'm glad we only have the two mics so people can't hear you because they don't want to hear the trash. Um, So... James is a uh, you know is an expert on the topic and knows a lot about it and we thought it'd be worthwhile to bring him on as a you know a friend a former you're never a former just like a marine you're never a former marine mm-hmm. you are always a marine you're always a waters and a uh, friend of waters so we figured we'd have him on to talk a little about so James what you know from someone maybe that doesn't have as much knowledge of the situation what happened what does this mean going forward what's you know we start big and then we can kind of maybe drill down a little bit yeah so um, I mean I guess it's about a year to the day that they first announced that they were going to try and combine uh, LSE and Deutsche Börse. Um, since then, it's been torturous, I think. Uh, so <laughs> the European Commission obviously had a few concerns from an antitrust level around the clearing operations that both of these companies have. Um, but the LSE on Sunday said it also had further concerns around its Italian franchise as well. So the LSE owns Borsa Italiana, it owns Monte Titoli, the Central Securities Depository. It owns the Clearinghouse, and it owns NTS, which is the main platform for trading bonds and repo in the Italian markets. Uh, so according to the LSE statement, um, as a remedy for the antitrust concerns, they wanted them to sell their 60%, I think, stake in NTS. But uh, the LSE... Well, it's weird. I mean, a lot of the mainstream news reports have said that the LSE won't sell it. But reading their statement, which is about two pages long, it's fairly lengthy by LSE standards, um, they seem to suggest they can't sell it. Like the regulators weren't particularly keen on them divesting a stake quickly just to enable the sale. 
Uh, and as such, the LSE itself said they don't expect the merger to go through. So this kind of put the knockers on any potential combination, which was already in doubt after the Brexit vote anyway, and everything else had to go through as well. All right, so that was going to be my first question. Is So this is kind of pitched as... You know, they can't sell MTS, right? They, they have this relationship with, with regulators, and they, they don't want to – I think they said something to uh, the effect that it'll – it could uh, – critically important relationship with these regulators be detrimental to Ellis, EG's ongoing business in Italy and the right. combined group. But, you know, you mentioned with Brexit, how is there more to this story maybe than what's initially – I guess there's always more to a story. Yeah. But is there more than being initially let on? I know I don't, you don't want you – have to speculate too much but what's your you know as someone that's covered this for a while what's your perception of what's really going on yeah, here i think so i mean um if you look at this deal when it was first announced this was before the vote to leave the european union on behalf of the uk undertook um and at the time it made sense i mean you had a the two biggest stock exchanges in europe combining to create a european stock exchange with the italian interest as well and uh the csd that deutsche Börse owns in luxembourg uh clearstream um and it made sense, especially with the European Union going for capital markets union plans with the British Commissioner. Now, come June 24th, the European Union and the UK are no longer going to be the same entity in a few years' time. So you have the political optics of potentially a huge part of this business being managed from outside the European Union, which has been a problem for the German side of it from the very beginning, because the, the overall company, the PLC, which controls the two companies, is always going to be based in London despite the fact the headquarters would duly be in Frankfurt and London. Um, so, yeah, you've had the state regulators in Hesse, where Frankfurt's located, and they blocked the previous uh, Neiser Euronex Deutsche Börse deal, saying that they're probably not going to okay it. Now you have the European Commission looking at it and thinking, well, if we do this, then we have no oversight or control on a UK entity. And even last week, actually, and I think this is probably the key point, um, there was a parliamentary hearing in the UK um, led by Sir Bill Cash, which expressed a lot of anxiety about the potential for the London Stock Exchange being controlled by a German entity as well. So while the Germans have expressed a lot of opposition to it, that was the first time UK parliamentarians really came out and said, we're not sure about this, guys. Um, have we looked at this properly? Um, so I don't think anyone really thinks that Italian bond and repo trading is really the main reason that's going to scuffle the deal. It's obviously a concern. Um, and I think, as I said, the LSE has taken a bit of an unfair kicking over this over the last few days. But... I think it's also a politically expedient petard upon which to hoist the deal as well. It lets both sides avoid having to answer some difficult questions about politics and verging on the policy areas as well. We've seen in recent years, so you brought up uh, Nice and Deutsche Börse. Mm. That one got scuttled. It was LSE and the Toronto Stock Exchange yep. a while back got scuttled. Going forward, let's take the assumption that this deal does finally fall through and somebody finally throws in the towel here. Do you see a U.S. exchange now looking to kind of move in and make a deal with LSE? Do you think a, a major deal has to essentially happen here in the future? Yeah, I mean, that's been the, the chatter, I guess. Everyone's saying that ICE is going to move in and maybe try and take a piece of the LSE pie. And it's always a possibility, I guess. Um, for me, I don't see it as a particularly likely outcome, I think, for a number of reasons. Number one... The LSE isn't the same company it was back in 2006, 2007, 2010 when it was trying to be taken over by NASDAQ, by Macquarie, by anyone under the sun really. Now it's got a strong technology business, it's got a really strong derivatives business with LCH, um, it's really big in indices now through its acquisition of Russell, it's a very different company to what it was before. 
and then the second reason, looking at people like ICE, I mean, they're huge. Uh, they've acquired a lot of companies in a very short space of time, not least of all Nice Euronext, of course, um, but also Interactive Data and other people as well. I think Sprecher, uh, Jeff Sprecher, the CEO, recently said on a conference call as well that their acquisitions will continue, but they're not going to be at such a big scale as they have been in the past. And acquiring something like the LSE is not just a huge undertaking, but it's also not necessarily core to what they want to do, I think. Um, they inherited the listings primary market business through Nizer Euronext. Um, have they always wanted to be in that business? I don't know. And acquiring the primary market of the UK would obviously put them very squarely in that. Um, I would suggest it's more likely, perhaps, that the LSE will become acquisitive and maybe look to pick up some other groups as well. There are various different groups that start focusing on technology, for instance, that could quite easily fold into it. Um, so, yeah, maybe not from the transatlantic angle. Um, possibly from Asia, there might be some companies looking at maybe seeing the LSE as a ripe target for acquisition, but again, Asia is so fragmented, it's not the same as the US or Europe, um, and it would be difficult, I think, for a company to come and do that. See, there's keys to acquisition, because, for instance, Anthony and I don't know enough about this topic, so we acquired James to come in and provide his expertise. That shows the power. In many ways, he's kind of like an advisor who really gets screwed over the most, apparently, in this deal falling apart. So I was reading that the 340, what was it, a million dollar fee that for the advisors to gain on both sides, you know, they'll get a little bit of that back. But it's there. That was all contingent on them falling on, on that closing. So really, the advisors walk away with nothing. Just the same way that James coming in here and helping us uh, better understand the topic, you really gain nothing out of this. <laughs> well, well, James, what's your Twitter handle? Jim Rundle. Jim Rundle. So there you go. That's that's what he gets. He gets to wet his beak with yeah. with some followers. You know, maybe some people, and and make sure you tweet. At James saying that you listen to him on the Waters Wavelength podcast, and that's why. And then we'll get more, you know, folks who want to come I can on. Justify it to my beer chief. Well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, we gotta, you know, before we let you out of here, um, gotta quickly do some uh, football, some soccer talk. If you couldn't tell from James accent, he's from England, like everyone else in this goddamn office besides Tony and I. <laughs> um, and uh, he's a, a football fan, also a rugby fan. But again, Tony and I don't know really much about rugby, so we're not going to talk about rugby. But a uh, big football fan, big Chelsea fan, you know, after a tough year last year, sitting at the top of the table. Uh, what are your thoughts so far in the season? How do you feel? How do you feel about the position Chelsea's in right now? I mean, it's, it's ours to lose, right? Uh, yeah. We've got uh, a few months left. None of our games ahead, I don't think, are particularly challenging in the way that we've had some pretty tough games so far this season, which we've lost on some of the big ones. Um, yeah, I mean, we're 10 points clear. Spurs are nipping at our heels, but unless they really pull it out of the bag and unless we uh, unless we spectacularly collapse then I don't see it as going either way yeah I guess I, I guess to put it in terms of someone that isn't familiar with with uh, that isn't familiar with with soccer what 10 points up at this point in the season going into March so basically what there's two two March April and May so about three months left of the yeah, season right yeah. so and how many games about do you know it's was it 12? Yeah, it's some of the, yeah, I mean, mostly every weekend, but some rest weekends. Right, so what type of, for them to, they would have to, in let's say there's 12 games left, what would they realistically, what would they have to lose, what, at least three or four of those to be to completely lose the lead? Or, well, it would have to yeah, be pretty. Have to be more than that, I think. Um, it, yeah, I mean, Spurs would have to win a lot of their games. Yeah. So it, there was three points for a win, one point for a right. draw. So, I mean, you do the math, really, if we're, 
going ahead. Well, don't, don't ever ask me to do the math because that's, a, that's a, a road we can't go down. No. Let me ask you this. So away from that, so last year we had a great, you know, there's just frantic run to the title and then capped off by Leicester, this underdog winning the championship. Leicester played absolutely hideous to watch football. I could not, I hated winning on TV. Granted, it was a beautiful story, but they were boring as hell to watch. So I'm kind of happy that this team is falling apart and might be relegated. Maybe that's just me. Maybe it says a little bit more about me. Are you saddened to see their massive decline, or is it kind of like, eh, you guys got your title now? That now the world is evening itself out a little no, bit. I'm a Chelsea fan. This is great. I'm Japan. I'm Japan in the Pacific Theater at the moment. Leicester. I, my dad's a Coventry fan, so I have a bit of a sympathy for the Midlands teams. Um, I don't know your colleague Joanne Faulkner is a pretty heavy Leicester City fan, so I can't say anything too bad. But uh, you know. It's a tough game. That's what happens. Do you do you think anything like that will ever happen? In in having, I mean, I know five thousand. Everyone keeps kind of saying also the five thousand one odds. I think that was only one bookmaker that made that with his friend and said when pigs will fly. I mean, they were it was crazy odds that they won. But do you you ever see a team outside of let's call it the the power six or whatever it is in the Premier League actually being able to rise that quickly and win the EPL? Yeah, for sure. I mean. The sad indictment of football these days that's been made for years is that all it takes is a lot of money and a lot of commitment and you can make anything happen. So, I mean, I'm pretty sure you could take, say, Coventry City FC, who are on relegation uh, watch at the moment and, you know, pump millions into them and then eventually they could probably rise and take it back again. It's uh, Football's not necessarily about how the club itself was positioned or its academy or anything else. It's how much money you can spend on players and how well they gel together a lot of the time. Get a sugar daddy. Yeah. Daddy, right? yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, real quick, since I'm a City fan and we're probably not going to win the EPL, but we are still in the bigger, the more, way more important tournament, the UEFA Championship, <laughs> as I'd say, because and your team isn't. What is your prediction on the UEFA Championship? I think City's going to be long live for it. I mean, do you reckon? So. I mean, the Monaco game. Anthony and I were uh, were at a conference <laughs> watching, and I've never I've never seen a soccer game with eight goals before. They won five three. That was that was incredible. Uh, I don't know. I I haven't been following. To be honest, I haven't been following it as closely as I should. But it's uh, it, it I, I I don't know. I don't know. I'm asking you. You're the football oh, yeah, expert. Yeah. That's why we got you on. My FIFA 17 game is pretty strong, but, uh, <laughs> as you said before. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'd like them to win. Uh, do I think they will? I don't know enough about European football to be honest to, to give a proper response to that. But I hope they do. Yes, yeah, so. you. Well, well, cheers for that. Um, I guess that's it for us. First of all, James, thanks, thanks for coming on again. What's your Twitter handle? Jim Rundle. Be sure to give him a follow. Send him a tweet. Say how awesome it was to have him on. But we thank you for coming on. As always, good to see a member of the Waters uh, family. Uh, Anthony, you got anything else to add? That's all I got. Well, that's it from us. So thanks so much for tuning in, and be sure to come back next Thursday.